The world looks on in shock and awe that this beacon of democracy has such a honestly crappy election system and election officials are incredibly good, hardworking people who are caught in a system that hasn't been modernized, isn't appropriate to when people can vote, all those problems. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Will sports arenas and stadiums become the home field for the 2020 elections? Numerous professional sports teams have agreed to have their stadiums and arenas serve as election supercenters this November. The list of participating teams includes the Boston Red Sox, Pittsburgh Steelers, Milwaukee Bucks, Golden State Warriors, and Washington Wizards, to name a few. Here to talk about this is Eugene Jarecki, an Emmy and Peabody award-winning documentary director from Vermont. He is co-chair of the nonpartisan Election Supercenters Project. Eugene Jarecki, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Great to be back. So how did sports arenas end up as voting centers? Well, my team really put this on the map, um, and it all started because when the pandemic struck, I started something called the Silver Linings Group. And we were looking for any silver linings we could find at a time of crisis. We wanted to make the most and avoid the worst that could come out of a crisis. And it was about 150 military, medical, political, artistic, legal, and other experts, kind of movers and shakers and thinkers and doers. And we get on the phone every week and issues emerged, things we were most concerned about. And the one that was most on everybody's mind from day one, and it became a subtask force, uh, was about election security, making sure that people would have voter access this November, imperiled by a pandemic imperiled by the usual obstacles to voting in America for so many, particularly in minority communities and marginalized communities, but also that we understood that there was a White House that had made clear already that it was not in the business of wanting a lot of Americans to vote, that it saw its election prospects, let me not say it euphemistically, the president, Donald Trump, made clear that he did not want a majority of Americans voting because he knew that if a majority of Americans voted, he would lose. And he made that known to his own sponsors. He made it known to his own party. He made it known on an open mic constantly, proudly. Well, that told us, you better have a way that people can vote because if he doesn't want it, there's a reason he doesn't want it. So how did this idea rise to the top, turning stadiums into voting booths? So we were on these calls every week, every week, and one of the members of our election task force is a woman named Amber McReynolds. She was director of elections in Denver before she then founded the National Vote at Home Institute. She's its CEO. And what Amber did when she was director of elections was amazing. She once upon a time introduced the idea three years ago that the Denver Broncos and other Denver teams should open their arena doors for supplemental voting sites. Not because there was a pandemic, there wasn't, but just to take the pressure off the existing election infrastructure, which all too often is beleaguered, isn't prepared for the numbers of people that come to vote and the vote counting and all that. America always, the world looks on in shock and awe that this beacon of democracy has such a honestly crappy election system and election officials are incredibly good, hardworking people who are caught in a system that hasn't been modernized isn't appropriate to when people can vote, all those problems. So all the way back then, Amber McReynolds had taken the view, we should have sports arenas be supplemental voting sites. Well, it wasn't possible back then because the Denver Broncos and others, they were active arenas. They couldn't spare 
election day, they couldn't just give it away. They needed to charge for it. The boards of elections don't have that kind of money. So the profit motive got in the way. So after many calls now in my Silver Linings group, where we were trying to solve voter access this fall, I kept hearing about vote by mail. Well, vote by mail is great for some people, but it's not good, for example, for African-Americans, who very often don't trust the post office for historical reasons. Very often poorer communities, people don't have reliable home addresses. So vote by mail may not work for them. So I needed a solution that was bigger than vote by mail. Vote by mail is a huge part of it. And we are, I mean, Amber is the head of the National Vote at Home Institute. She's a vote by mail advocate, and so am I. But we needed something above and beyond that at a time of pandemic to deal with the need for social distance voting and to deal with the ability to have people uh, be able to get around obstacles to voting that are so difficult for them. And she proposed it one day. She said I had, she had done it in Denver and tried to do it. And I said, oh my goodness, that is the biggest idea since sliced bread. Right now, all these arenas are sitting around collecting dust. We ought to get the idea in the mind of someone. We should get it to LeBron. LeBron has already made clear he wants to do something for Black American voting, for example. Let's get LeBron the idea of opening arenas. LeBron, LeBron took it, ran with it, made a public, uh, 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 really made a public splash out of his advocacy for this. Moving on it in Detroit, the Atlanta Hawks followed. And then my team started working on what is now about 16 other teams. And it grew and grew. And as you may know, in the past week, um, Doc Rivers, uh, the wonderful and, and legendary coach, became sort of the face of what we're doing over time because he was one of our early allies within the sports world. And what Doc did, which was so magical, was he became our envoy into the NBA. And when the NBA struck last week and when players created a boycott, the settlement was underway and being discussed and Doc was there and Doc stood up and made it necessary for the settlement that the NBA endorse turning their arenas into voters into election super centers. And by doing that, he put this thing into the stratosphere where now we're having calls come in every day with arenas that want to open rather than us knocking on arena doors. Well, you mentioned Doc Rivers. Uh, we're going to just go to a clip of Doc Rivers responding to both the uh, killings in Kenosha, Wisconsin, of uh, in, an unarmed black man, but also responding to the Republican National Convention and the imageries of fear that were used throughout that week. Here's Doc Rivers. What stands out to me is um, just just watching the Republican Revention, uh, Convention and this they're spewing this fear, right? Like all you hear Donald Trump and all of them talking about fear. We're the ones getting killed. We're the ones getting shot. Uh, we're the ones that we're denied to live in certain communities. Um, we've been hung. We've been shot. And all you do is keep hearing about fear. It's, it's amazing to me why we keep loving this country and this country does not love us back and it's just it's really so sad like I should just be a coach and it's so often reminded of my color you know it's just really sad we got to do better uh, but we got to demand better like we got you know it's, it's funny we protest 
and they send riot guards, right? Uh, they send people in riot outfits. They go to Michigan with guns and they're spitting on cops and nothing happens. The training has to change in the police force. The unions have to be taken down in the police force. My dad was a cop. I believe in good cops. We're not trying to defund the police and take all their money away. We're trying to get them to protect us, just like they protect everybody else. When you heard Doc Rivers talk in the way that he did from the heart, what was your response? Incredibly specific response, and it was then underscored by the piece that the Lincoln Project has made using Doc Rivers a couple of days ago, where they use his voice in their amazing piece that everybody should see. Just go to Twitter and to the Lincoln Project and see their piece with Doc Rivers. My impression was very specific. Doc Rivers is the kind of American who speaks to all Americans not just because of his legendary status, not just because of his talent as a coach and as a community leader, but because the way he opens his mouth and speaks, you remember what things were like when it wasn't all a party game, when it wasn't all driven by party. He speaks so from the heart that I think anybody would have a hard time holding on to some idiotic partisan uh, uh, agenda hearing him. He's talking about the dignity that all people are entitled to. He's talking about the dignity that is the basis of the American story and the American dream. And I was moved to tears listening to him. And of course, he was moved to tears, which was a uh, part of yeah. uh, what was so striking about it. And for those who don't know who Doc Rivers is, he was coach of the Boston Celtics when they won uh, the NBA title and is now coach of the Los Angeles Clippers. Um, you know, one of the things that's striking about this moment is that sports has traditionally been reluctant or perhaps ambivalent about engaging in any kind of politics. What has changed to make it possible for you to pursue this election centers project? Well, I think it's really that this year, a lot of things came together in a perfect storm. The first was the pandemic itself that makes social distance voting necessary. And so all of a sudden, I don't have to explain to somebody for more than one second why an election supercenter is a good idea. They see the pictures of how it happened in Kentucky and they go, wow, there already was one of these, the Kentucky primary that was overseen by Jared Deering, who's one of our team members. He's the director of elections of Kentucky. The success of the Kentucky example is just a, a beautiful case study. Look how Wisconsin went. Look how painful and horrifying it was to watch Americans have to choose between their personal safety and their vote, and they didn't have to choose it in Kentucky thanks to an election super center. So the pandemic makes the case for this. That's the first thing. The second is that you have a brazen president who, as never before in history, has told the American people that he does not want them to vote. He is afraid that if people vote, he will lose. What he wants is the corporate hierarchy that he represents to basically usher him into office by rigging an election again. So we already heard from him, and that underscored for everybody why election supercenters were needed, because his group are trying to oppress the vote, suppress the vote, and create obstacles. And this is a coliseum-sized solution to that problem. It's larger than he can fight. He can attack the NBA. He can attack the MLB. He can attack the NFL. He can attack the NHL. At what point is that really going to help him? It's going to get too big for him to fight. 
So we knew that that was on our side. The next thing we also understood that's on our side is, you know, when a national emergency strikes like Katrina, they always need something like the Superdome to do the staging, right? To bring FEMA in, repair efforts. They always need a huge space to deal with the enormity of the problem. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have a democratic crisis, no different than a giant catastrophe like Katrina. And if the pandemic continues on the current pace, people's vote itself, the fundamental value of American life, will be imperiled. So I don't need to make the case for the election super center. It makes the case for itself, just like a superdome does when there's a national catastrophe. So explain how this will work. And uh, for people who are just tuning in, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation. We're talking with filmmaker Eugene Jarecki. He's co-chair of the Election Super Centers Project. Uh, so, uh, Eugene, the elections are typically run by local officials. Um, how does a super center work? The same. It's just a supplemental voting site. And the election boards across the country are accustomed to using high school gymnasiums and not YMCAs and churches and whatnot. This is no different. This is just larger and it allows social distancing. So when we broach this idea with boards of elections, they say, are you kidding? Sign us up yesterday. We need this so badly because we don't want our poll workers. Very often poll workers are, are older risk group people. We don't want them imperiled. We don't want the voters imperiled. We don't want long lines. We don't want Wisconsin. We want Kentucky. How do we get that? Well, it was a voter super center. So, but the, uh, so your polling place will not necessarily be in your neighborhood. It could be in the stadium that's a subway right away. Nope. We make clear to every election board, and they want to hear this because it's how they think also, we are not here to replace existing polling sites. We are only supplemental, right? Now, if those polling sites close in an emergency, then thank goodness people have somewhere where they can go like they did in Louisville when they went to the fairgrounds because their place was closed. But as at, at face value, we do not offer replacement. We are just more space. And by the way, it's not just on election day. In many states, they'll be open for early voting. That means that we'll get a lot of early voters out of the way. So by the time election day comes around, we will have relieved the pressure on the uh, traditional election infrastructure enormously. Fewer lines, fewer compromising situations, less of a backlog, less of a voter integrity set of questions on election day. Remember, this president has made it clear that he plans on election day with the help of his attorney general. He plans to go after the sanctity of the vote by saying, look, all my people have voted because they don't vote by mail. It looks like I already won. We've slowed down the post office and now the other Votes are coming. Oh, it's a mess. I always knew it would be. He's going to try to declare a victory on election day, if, if my guess is right. Well, the benefit of this is we'll get a lot of voters out of the way that'll displace. So uh, to be clear, so you could have a stadium serve multiple precincts that had chosen to have it as their kind of backup or supplemental polling place. It wouldn't just be, you know, one precinct. Right. And so, for example, in every state, we look at the, the key counties that we're targeting, and those counties are just across the map. They're not red counties, blue counties. They're just counties that we think are elemental to the vote and getting, a lot of, getting the maximum amount of Americans voting. And once we do that, we then figure out how do you cover this town? So, for example, in a place like Milwaukee, it might be a few different arenas that we're talking about, or a place like uh, a place like Dallas might be a few different arenas because maybe the Mavericks isn't going to be the whole town. Maybe it'll be a part of town. But like, take for example, in uh, in Newark, the New Jersey Devils have signed on. That's one. That's the first NHL team that's come online. 
And now that the devils have signed on, well, I was in touch with them. I said, how's it going? They said, oh, it's going great. We're moving gangbusters forward with the, with the board of election. I was like, terrific. I haven't heard from you guys in a while. It's all good. You don't need me. And I, no, we're good. We're good. We're good. In fact, he said, we took it to the advanced class. And I said, what's that? He said, we got in touch with the attorney general of the state to see whether the devils, the Prudential Center, which is where the devils play, which is in Newark, whether we can service all of Newark here whether they'll give us an allowance where this arena can actually take voters from anywhere in Newark, not just the part of town that the arena's in. Well, we hope that more states take that initiative, more arenas and teams take that initiative to get out ahead of that and make the arena count for that much more. If everybody did that, you'd have a massive amount of coverage for voters in this country. We'd look a little bit more like Sweden and a little bit less like a gulag. So this is a very complicated uh, uh, thing with a lot of moving parts. If you were to have all of Newark, all of a city voting in a place, uh, let's remember elections are about everything from the local town constables and things like that all the way up to president. So you would have to have a highly organized operation where ballots from all these localities are now in one place. And you're making plans for that now? Yes. And that really falls to the boards of election who know when this is coming in, you know, one day they got an offer. Oh, look, we've got this gymnasium. It can take 15 voting uh, voting booths. Oh, wow. We got this one. It can take what? 350. Oh, Harriet, we've got a place that'll do 350. Let's get organized for that. And then just get organized for that. It's just for them. It's just booths. It's just personnel. So that brings me to the real issue, which is polling personnel. Because a lot of poll workers do fall into uh, high-risk groups. A lot of poll workers are older. I think the mean age is about 61. So it's really a high mean age for, for poll workers. But there are poll worker organizations all over this country right now that are training poll workers. And one of the things we say to arena after arena is, don't forget, the Pacers got this before anybody else. You're furloughed workers. What a perfect group of people to be poll workers. Your fans who love your arena and love hanging out there, you know, that guy with the foam thumb who's always waving from the audience, that guy, he can be a poll worker. It takes six hours to get trained in it. You'd have a whole new generation of younger non-risk group poll workers. So are there cities uh, that are already planning this kind of centralized voting, or is this going to sort of wait until they get closer to election time and assess what's going on with the pandemic, what's going on in their communities? Properly, they can't wait. These places and these designations have to be made ASAP so that the public can be made aware of them and we don't create confusion with the arenas. And I know that individual boards of elections aren't going to let that happen. They know that they've got to function well. This is either value added or it's not for them. And if I came in on November 1st and said, hey, you want to set up one of these? They go, are you crazy? We've already printed all the flyers. We've already told everybody it's in all the papers. We've got everything booked. So we know that the last few months we've been putting arenas online have been crucial. And now that arenas are signing up more quickly, I would say the next few weeks are everything. And then at a certain point, it may be if the pandemic goes through the roof, God forbid, then you may be in a position in October where as an emergency measure, because we've already established the example of arena functionality for this. We already have a huge buy-in across the country. You may have communities that are basically marching in the streets saying, we need to have arena voting here because those guys do. And it's not fair that we don't, and I got to go vote in danger. Hmm. What is LeBron James' ongoing involvement with this? I know he's talked about higher, you know, paying for poll workers and, um, how, how are you interacting with him on this? 
LeBron James, I think, has done a heroic job of putting this into the national consciousness and really took the biggest chance of everybody with his own celebrity to endorse this and move it forward. And I think history will record what a huge thing he did with that. Um, his group, more than a vote, is um, really concerned with, with African-American disenfranchisement and voting. And so a lot of their focus is there and therefore having initiated the idea and kind of given it uh, on to, for people to run with, we then decided we've got to do the heavy lifting to get an enormous number of teams involved. And that's how we got Doc Rivers involved. That's how we got the NBA to sign off on this. And that's how we've now moved into the other leagues as well. And we're also working on about 35 or 40 college arenas in key areas across the country. I just got off the phone with a consortium of, of Broadway type theaters across the country performing art spaces. Because it's not just sporting arenas, it's any large scale arena venue that can help the public have social distance voting. Now, we know that the biggest focus of voter suppression efforts is going to be in swing states. And Florida will be at the top of that list, but so will Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Michigan. What's happening specifically in the swing states? With with the election supercenters concept? Yes. Well, there are states like anywhere else, and the teams that are operating there, like the 76ers or the, um, or the Pistons or the Bucks, or, you know, you can name it, you can go down the obvious swing states and think through the teams and arenas that, that uh, cover the waterfront there. Every single one of them is either, you know, is owned in one way or another, is, uh, you know, controlled in one way or another. Uh, you know, the DeVos family controls a bunch of the sports franchises in Florida, they're probably going to be a little less likely to let Americans vote if our evidence for Ms. DeVos's support of the craziest things Donald Trump wants to do is any evidence. And this is, um, this is Betsy DeVos, the yes. Secretary of Education. Her family is, I believe, the Amway fortune. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so they own it, you know, so in every state, you never know. I don't want to be biased about it. I should say to people that I'm a nonpartisan human being. I'm as offended by the Democratic Party in this country as I am by the Republicans, which I guess has made me a good salesman for getting more Americans to vote because I actually want them to vote everywhere. But that doesn't mean that people who are on one side or another necessarily want that. As we've learned from Mr. Trump, his party seems to think that his destiny would be helped by fewer people voting. That's their idea of the world. That's, to me, it sounds like the enemy of America, the enemy of democracy to limit voting. So for me, I want it everywhere, but the swing states are no different than anywhere else. The arena's got to get along with the Board of Elections. The Board of Elections has to not have a bunch of red tape that's going to get in the way. If they do have the red tape, they got to work a way around it. We have found the Boards of Elections to be tremendously cooperative and tremendously happy about this idea. And that's part of why it gained such legs. And that's part of what led us to the NBA announcement. And it's part of what's now becoming a more, a really sort of um, kind of domino effect where lots and lots of, uh, of arenas and venues are signing on now. What do you think is going to be most critical between now and election day that will determine whether people even get to vote? Uh, as you've pointed out, there's talk of all kinds of shenanigans that could result in altering the outcomes of elections. Um, what worries you the most? Um, I think you have a very lawless administration in Washington. And I think, uh, look, the president lost the popular vote in 2016 resoundingly and still held on to the presidency by virtue of the 
what again the world thinks is the craziest thing they've ever heard, the Electoral College, which is an incredibly outmoded device. Um, the 2018 midterms was a landslide referendum against the president. Um, that's good evidence that he's on shaky ground because the world was much better then, and he already got a you know sort of really lost a major uh, blow there. Um, I think he's aware of that. I think if you look at his body language, he's a panicked man. Um, I think he's very frightened. He's very frightened at the numbers he's seeing. He recognizes that people see this country as having failed in the pandemic. And he's its leader. He sees that the economy is in the tank. He sees that our European allies are not suffering that in the way that he has caused this country to suffer that. He knows that he only has bedfellows like Bolsonaro. He knows all that. And he knows that the numbers are saying all that. This is why he's not a confident candidate. It's why he's attacking the NBA today. It's why he's attacking his adversaries, why he's attacking the media, attacking women. So that all could be really reassuring, except, you know, be very wary of a wounded monster. Um, you know, they always say in hunting, you know, I, I, I was I was in Africa once a week after a man had been where I was and he had wounded a water buffalo. And he went after that water buffalo because there's a kind of rule of hunting, apparently. You got to kill the game that you uh, that you injure. And he went in there to kill that wounded beast and that beast tore him to pieces. So I think there's an old rule of thumb, which is a wounded, wounded monster can do some really dark stuff. And we've learned, when we learn that most of the board members of the United States Postal Service are Trump cronies, that is a deeply worrisome thing for us to be learning now. Now you tell us. And that's really the fault of the Democratic Party, frankly. It's the and fault of anybody who's his critic. And why do you say you're as offended by the Democrats as by the Republicans? Because I think the Democrats allowed this country for 40 years to become hijacked against the the the, the best interests of working people. And they made a deal with Wall Street. They, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans are not that different. But what's different about them for sure is that the Republicans are brazenly what they are. And the Democrats live in a state of hypocrisy where they say one thing to their supporters, but they're really on the payroll of the paymasters who control Washington. And that's not some dark, deep state theory. We all know what that is. That's the banking industry, the pharma industry, the insurance industry. It's why none of these people ever get anything other than a slap on the wrist while some black kid gets pulled over by the side of the road and gets 20 years for an ounce of something. We live in a warped reality, and it's controlled by what Dwight Eisenhower most warned us about. If you want to call me anything, call me an Eisenhower Republican, because Eisenhower was way way out ahead of this when he told us about the military industrial complex and when he told us about the scientific technological elite, what he called the power of concentrated finance to warp our priorities and make you think up is down and down is up. And we live in that world and the Democrats stood by and let that world happen. We all know how they let, you know, county offices and judgeships and state legislatures and all that slip away and become a kind of new kind of very warping right-wing populism that is hurtful to all involved. It is especially hurtful to the people who think it's helpful to them because a con has been perpetrated against working people and the Democrats didn't defend those people while they told them they would. Okay. Well, Eugene Derecki, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. Eugene Derecki is an Emmy and Peabody award-winning documentary filmmaker and co-chair of the nonpartisan Election Supercenters Project. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.